0: Well, I told a few people that I would give my thoughts on Marx, which I'm a little bit reluctant to do because people have such strong opinions about Marx. Uh, I think Marxists, in the more contemporary sense, have probably developed his original ideas and directions that I just don't know and don't aren't really privy to and sensitive to all the... Contours of those discussions and probably don't care much either because it does seem like, I mean, even in Marx's lifetime, he was saying, like, I mean, he famously said once, I don't know about what's going on with all this stuff, but one thing I can tell you for certain is that I'm not a Marxist. That's what Marx said. So, like, the IST had some apparently was taken and ran with by many, many people right up to the present day. And generally speaking, it, it's seen, I think, by conservative people or even really middle-of-the-road people that have some modicum of common sense about things. It's basically seen as what amounts to a cancer <laughs> in education and culture writ large. And for various reasons, that his economic class warfare... The idea of class warfare was well developed in the context that he was talking when he was talking in what was is also relevant at the, the sort of nearing the apex of the industrial revolution in the mid the early to mid nineteenth century in England, where he was writing. So that in that in that context, the class warfare issue made a lot of sense because it was before any welfare policies were in effect, and it was before, you know, um, the British, uh, you know, the British, the British basically passed a series of reforms, reform acts by the 1860s that largely, that certainly did, if not, if not eliminated or obviated the, the Marx's concerns as expressed in, you know, the manifesto and in capital, certainly blunted the immediate force of his Marx's objections because basically they put in place a bunch of laws for workers and put in place a bunch of educational reform which made it possible for people to be upwardly mobile so that if you were working and you were educated, there were no Major and also, by the way, the voting rights were extended majorly, and not and not to women. I think w- women's suffrage was a bit later, but the the entire democracy was expanding to to with the express aim of in in Britain, and of course, this happened in the U.S. And then it happened, it, and then it happened. It was spread all over the develop the uh, you know the first world, the Western world, and I think now it's actually happening in the developing world. So. A lot of what capital, what, what, uh, as capitalism, as sort of commercialism, really, commerce based systems mature in democracies, as, as a cat, as a, basically, as a capitalist system matures in a functioning democracy, there's a symbiosis where the democracy starts to make, you know, move towards universal suffrage and greater, the extension of greater rights, I mean there's the negative rights that were already already in effect, and then the extension the, the extension of positive rights to members of the society to citizens, like that sort of starts to happen. And then what that does is the symbiotic part of it is is that and I think this is basically true. It's not you know it could you could take this as kind of boilerplate marketing for capitalists. But I think it's basically been it's largely true that this happens as that as the democracy changes and the market the market capitalism starts to mature the upward mobility the opportunities for upward mobility in the class structure the implicit class structure of a capitalist economy is money based right so you don't have an aristocracy anymore but you have rich people and you don't have lords and you know owners of of serfs and so on but you have a middle class or what you know Marx called a bourgeoisie and then under that you might have somebody a shop owner like the what he called the petite bourgeoisie and then you have a bunch of people that are based that their power in the economy comes from labor so basically they put in their labor and they receive pay but so Marx was primarily concerned that those people were getting systematically screwed what he called the proletariat, but what we would just call wage earners, right? And they're just getting screwed. They're working these terrible hours and they don't have any, there's no hope for them ever to improve their lot in society. They can't move anywhere. They're just plugging into a, an industrial machine that somebody else owns, And so like, you know, and all the surplus value is going to the owner and the worker, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you a raise. It's funny because actually when you look at people who are making, who are working hourly and getting money and, you know, and they don't have enough to save and, you know, they, oh, I got 15 cents, uh, uh, you know, I got a raise 15 cents on the dollar this last year of working, you know, 40,000 hours or whatever. It's like, yeah, you're not really getting anywhere and it's not clear that you can get anywhere. You're sort of stuck at the bottom of the system. But the stuckness that Marx was talking about to really get to the point here was not the same stuckness that was really that was really part and parcel of the British system even by the end of the 19th century let alone going into the 20th century when you had unions and everything else. Right? So you just you had it was very obvious that capitalism could fix the majority of the objections that Marx leveled at Capitalism, qua you know, circa 1830. Well, he was born in Like, what? What he was born? 18? Yeah, he was born in like 1850, 1840, 1850 when he was a student in at Berlin. So a little bit about him. He ended up. He knew quite a bit about the British system. He ended up moving. He ended up getting kicked out of Germany basically because he kept. He was radicalizing he was the editor and contributor to a newspaper i forget which one and then he was basically inciting the world to a communist revolution using he had adapted hegel's principles that he had learned at the university of berlin and you know he had he had applied hegelian philosophy to the idea of all the workers should revolt because that's the next stage and capitalism has this contradiction, which famously Hegel said, history moves forward be, because it gets caught in contradictions where people have a set of ideas that don't fit together. And eventually it blows everything up, but that process is creative. It paves or it makes, the, it ushers in, uh, it inaugurates, as it were, the new phase of history. So Marx said, yeah, that applies to the economy and commun- and capitalism has these contradictions. Um. And so, he ended up in England, and he wrote. He was in Paris for a while, and um, I don't think he was kicked. It's pretty hard to get kicked out of Paris in the 19th century, because Paris was one of the most was was basically a haven for intellectuals of every stripe. You know, wh- you know, misfits, intellectuals, rabble rousers conspiracy you know revolution terrorists like anybody like i think uh who was it uh bakunin the famous uh he he was russian of course bakunin but he was a uh i, I kept blacking on the the word now he was the, he was basically an anarchist right so he was just preaching the overthrow of the system in the name of the common man It's always in the name of the common man, by the way. Nobody ever overthrows the system in the name of all the rich people. It's always, you know, it's always the, the anarchy is always for whoever doesn't have power to have power. And they never really, it's never really thought through to like, what are you going to do then? Like, aren't the same structures just going to reproduce, but just different people are holding the guns. But, um, so yeah, but like, so he was in Paris at that time. It must've been a really exciting time to be in Paris, but he ended up, basically he ended up he ended up in England and he never did like England, but he learned and he met Engels there, of course, Frederick Engels, who was another German, but they both ended up in, and Engels, by the way, had a bourgeoisie job. His father was a, uh, like owned a bunch of textile, I owned a bunch of, I don't remember what it was, but owned a bunch of businesses, or it could have been real estate or something, but it, like basically, his father was fairly well to do, and Engels ended up working f- basically for the family business and used that some of that money to support Marx, who was, I mean, Marx couldn't, you know, put two pennies together for a lot of his career. He was just terribly poor. And he was extremely talented, but he had no interest in working in the system, of course. And so the only way he could make money was by writing. And the only writing he would do would be in publications that are basically preaching for the overthrow of the government. So it was not very easy to make money that way. Like It's like, dude, you're not giving yourself a lot of options here. But uh, But anyway, so the point about Marx is that Marx had a set of ideas that... About you know that were highly crit- that were actually not critical of capitalism per se, but they were critical of capitalism as being the answer, the future answer. That it was that capitalism was just a, a stage that would of course give way to communism, and communism then was the kind of ultimate, the dissolution of classes themselves was the was the kind of endpoint for uh, civilization. And so, but what happened, so just to tie this back in with Marxists versus Marx, because I would not want to get into arguments with Marxists. I'm talking about what Karl Marx, the man wrote and said, <laughs> and, but what happened was is the idea, Marx's idea that classes are in conflict. And so you basically have in any system other than communism you have class warfare. You just have you have just interminable tension between classes intrinsically to the system. You're just going to have that, class warfare. That got that got extended and transmogrified by marxists to mean everything should be viewed in terms of classifications. So gender, race, everything is a class and all classes should be at war all the time because somebody's getting oppressed and it was it is implicit sort of exp, explicit in marx that you have this the dynamic of oppression right like it just is the case that wage earners who provide labor but don't have access to surplus value are getting oppressed by the system it's not that the the factory owner is an evil person it's that the system reco- it guarantees that the factory owner in in and in, in enters into a relation of oppression and victimization you know it, it just it just is the case that that system will victimize and oppress the wage earner, regardless of the moral interests you know the the moral qualifications of the the factory owner and so that was all that is part of that that's part of marxism but if you marxists have tended to see that as the fundamental mechanism governing society that everybody's basically just getting the, everybody but the but the the dominant class which is this idea of white colonial people i think that's the general idea from the empires the white the white the historically like the caucasian people who colonized the rest of the world with warships and guns and you know always it always seemed to be at the expense of whatever brown people they encountered I mean look this is all very valid like it's very hard to defend running around with muskets and shooting everybody for land to get gold to finance a war like Spain used the gold the silver mines in South America they used the silver basically to finance a war with Poland it's like, okay, yeah, and then just, like, basically exterminated the Incas in the process. Like, none of that is very good stuff. Like, I wouldn't want that on, like, it's not, a, it's, it doesn't fit on a Hallmark card very well. And so, but yeah, so basically, yeah, like, you, there, so you have this, like, there's one class that you can, that is doing all, basically doing all the victimizing. Just everyone else is just victimized by any possible dividing up of the classes, right? Like, so, and then what is it now? There's this something with the cross-sectional or something so like if you're black and if you're if you're a woman then you're like victimized by men and if you're a black woman then you're doubly victimized there's some sort of sectionality to it all where they not only do you have all this class warfare but you can combine classes to get even more victim status and like that those kind of ideas i don't think are very fruitful and they don't really resemble other than the original idea that he had that that wage earners were going to get there was a systematic sort of oppression that would, be, that would happen that was endemic to the system, not the person, that would happen in, a, in, a, in an industrial, like in you know 19th century industrial Britain that was happening actually. And he was, I think he was right, like he was wrong though because the, the so the, the, what happens to capitalism is that you start to see upward mobility becoming just as viable is downward mobility practically, right? So not quite. I mean, once you're rich, it's a little harder to become poor, but it happens all the time. I think I made more money, well, probably not this year, but if you look at last year, I think I was making more money 15 years ago because I kind of ruined my, I got to a certain point in the tech world and then I just kind of left it all, shut down my company and all that. And it's like, then I just went back to being way more, to being poor. Like I was poor for a decade until I wrote the book and then I got sort of back into the, but it's like, yeah, I was at this level in the economic place, not really super high, but higher than probably middle class, like upper middle. And then, now I, then I went to like lower middle, you know, while I was writing the book, I was just living, you know. And so like, th- there's this sense in which people naturally in a matured democracy and a functioning capitalist system that's integrated into an actual democracy like you could say in, in Western Europe and Britain and, I mean, in Western Europe and the United States and Canada, for instance, you know, you have, you see people going up and down all the time between classes. It's just constantly happening. So what, in, what Marx saw was a glass ceiling that you can't, you know, you can't reach if you're a wage earner. And what happened 50 years later, just after his lifetime, they... The second reform act was passed by Britain two years after he died in 1880. He died in 1883 and 1885. Britain passed a bunch of reform laws that largely addressed what he was talking about (laughs) without, without, without the need for an armed insurrection and revolution. But, um, yeah, but so like what he, he saw that as a kind of one way arrow. You can go, you can't get up there. So if you manage somehow, if you do manage to get up there, you won't go down because all the wage earners are going to keep you rich. So you're never, the arrow is never going to go from rich to poor. And there is no error from poor to rich, basically. You just have to be born into it or luck out or maybe one in a million people can find a way, save enough money somehow to, you know, maybe do that. But even by, you know, but, uh, you know, even by the time of, to just give you an idea for how time-sensitive Marx's message was at the outset of the, the Industrial Revolution, which started, of course, in, in England and in, you know, in, in Great Britain, to give you an idea how sensitive it was, even by the time in the United States President Abraham Lincoln was speaking, you know, he said you know, just 30 years after, you know, 20 years after Marx was writing this stuff, even really contemporaneously with Marx, if you look in the 1850s, um, 1860s, he said, You know, yesterday you're working for someone else, today uh, you're working for yourself, and tomorrow people are working for you. What he was saying is just like there's the, I, the, the way that capitalism should and will work if, you know, if, if Lincoln had anything to say about it, right? was that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, it's a revolving door or, you, or it's two arrows. One's going from poor up, you know, from hard work and so on and mechanisms that don't require miracles. You can work your way up into the middle class and beyond and, you know, with education and a little luck and everything else. But that's life. That's life, right? Like not everybody can be a billionaire. I mean, that's life. And, you know, you can also lose your fortune by speculating and by making bad deals and you can end up down. So it goes, back, it goes both ways. And that was, something, that was something that became pretty apparent, but was not really anticipated or discussed by Marx as a viable option. And so, I mean, if you talk about Marx's legacy, I think like for me... It's just you can't really defend what he said as a blueprint for how things actually work. It's just not it's not possible to say that if you're a wage if I start out, I mean I did all these jobs by the way. You can look at your own most of the people listening to this have a story, a personal history story that actually contradicts Marx's message. Almost I would guess almost everyone listening to this podcast, the three people that there are, actually has a story that contradicts a literal interpretation of Marx, which he intended it to be interpreted literally. In other words, I remember when I was in college, I mean, I got into college because my folks had, were middle class. You know, I did, I, I was, I mean, but even if I was poor in the United States, there's still ways to get, in, you know, get an education and so on. Um. I mean, that's a whole other discussion. But in principle, you're not really... If you really want to go to college in the United States, at least until very recently, I don't know. Certainly, it was a case when I was college age that if you really wanted to go to college, pretty much you were going to go. You could take Pell Grants. You could do whatever you wanted. There were many, many ways that you could get into college if you wanted to go. It would be very difficult not to get into college if you wanted to go. You'd have to really work on it, actually. You're going to get there. But... Um, you know, certainly in my case like when I was when I was studying, I was t- I was working for a physical plant making 7 dollars an hour or something back then. I don't know what it was. It wasn't a lot of money. Uh, you know, I just I worked for some crusty retired air, like some crusty retired military guy that told me to go pick up automobile parts in a van and bring it back to the warehouse. And that's what I did. Like That was my job. Why didn't I get stuck in that job? Because I was getting educated. And like Lincoln said, tomorrow, it's going to be a different day. And probably everybody has that story. And I used to work, I worked in a bagel shop. I had to show up at 4.30 in the morning when I was in Seattle in Ravenna, which is a nice district in Seattle. And I would show up when the, it was still pitch black out. And I would set up all the big pots of boiling stuff to cook the bagels in so that when people were driving, going off to work, we opened at six in the morning and there'd be hot, fresh bagels for them on their way off to their jobs. And I was the guy, I was the dude that was studying advanced mathematics at the university. of. I was studying advanced logic as a fifth year uh, student at the University of Washington. And I was making bagels at 4.30 in the morning for a boss that, you know, wasn't studying advanced mathematics. That's just the way it goes and what happens what happens well you know eventually you graduate you get a better job and then you work hard at that job i mean this is just like that that stuff is actually obvious that you go up like that for people who say you can't go up i don't know what they're smoking like what do you mean like that's almost everyone's story it certainly was until very recent history and it you know it it actually this actually sam sam harris makes this point well I feel slightly squeamish and uncomfortable making it because I'm just a white guy, but he makes this point well. He makes this point anyway. It seems like it's, he's like, it's even more true now in the United States for people of color and minorities and so on. Like the, All of these so-called disadvantaged classes now have been have – been, the, the situation has been so thoroughly rectified that it's actually never been easier for a non-white person – to get a you know a white collar job and to get access to the highest education levels you know the high, you know the best universities and all that stuff like it's just absolutely it it does not comport with facts with actual factual information at all to say that there's such a problem that there that the problem is so endemic that these institutions aren't arms open waiting for to increase the numbers of you know the diversity of ethnicity and all that stuff is it's just a, basically it's a huge rubber stamped policy everywhere you look including in corporate america right so like that's not it's just not so marx is the point is it's not to bang on some conservative drum it's to make the point that what marx was talking about just didn't materialize in capitalism as democracies matured and as those systems were subjected to continued scrutiny they just keep getting fixed the welfare net just keeps finding ways to do that the legal system keeps fixing laws that are that are you know uh disadvantaging people or otherwise you know causing suboptimal results and so yeah so i would say like marx's message is interesting it's an interesting analysis of what would happen if we didn't Scrutinize the systems that we're in. The last thing I want to say, but it's not, it, it's not, it's, it's fairly obvious that it doesn't apply. It's interesting, however, I would say, like, as a piece of pure theory, it actually, one thing I've, one thing I've appreciated, I just finished reading a biography of Marx by the, the famous intellectual historian Isaiah Berlin. Um, he's Russian born, but he was, of course, an English. He was a uh, Oxford Don for many, many years. He died in the 70s, actually, but he was, wrote most of his stuff during the Cold War, and he had a lot to say about a lot of things. And one of the things he was writing about was Marx for... That was actually his first main, major book. He wrote it when he was 30 years old. And it was probably... I think it's... I've read two other of his books, and I think it's one of his best books, the first one he wrote. And, of course, he wrote it because the interest... Marx had a continuing interest because of the dominance of communism in the world in the 1950s and you know the the communism was a was a much discussed subject that that uh you know was certainly alive and well in the 1950s at the height of the cold war so 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 yeah i uh i think it's interesting to read what he said because what it does like if you read if you read marx i've never read Capital. But, I, but in Berlin, um, copiously peppers his biography with actual, you know, sometimes like page long pieces of it where he's making Marx's, originally, Marx's original writing is showing up and he's saying this is how he's making this point. And it's interesting because like when you read Marx, you go, yeah, this actually would be, he just makes this really trenchant point that capitalism would function this way if you didn't fix it. Like you would, it's just very obvious that the people would get stuck on the bottom and they would just be effed. They'd be screwed. They'd never get out. Um, Because there's no real mechanism for that to happen unless you put exogenous institutions to work, like education, and you make legal reform and all this other stuff happen so that it becomes a a two-arrow up, down, up, down, type of system rather than it just everybody at the bottom supports people getting richer at the top. Um, so yes, all that being said, the other point I wanted to make re- that's relevant to Marxism, but also the earlier work from some of the enlightenment figures like Turgot and Adam Smith himself was that the idea of progress came to be tied to, there are all kinds of progress, there's moral progress and so on, but the, the idea of progress, civilization making progress, came to be tied to the question of economics relatively recently in our history, in the Western history and probably the world history. So it was really only in the Enlightenment. And, you know, maybe, like, if you look at Rousseau writing in 1750, you have the French Revolution in 1789. And before the French Revolution, you had a lot of people talking about progress. Terjeau, the French, he was an economist. He was a really very brilliant guy who was involved in the French monarchy early on. And I think even with Louis XVI, he was trying to reform the uh, economic a system that France was laboring under which you know in large part gave rise I mean there was a sequence of terrible decisions that gave rise to the revolution to the the French revolution but one of them certainly was that the government was basically almost insolvent it was basically in bankruptcy and of course it had to go out of pride couldn't let the british win the american war that that's the the american revolution 1776 so, you know, basically a decade, a little over uh, over a decade before the French Revolution, the almost bankrupt French government under Louis the Sixteenth was sending warships that they put on loan. You have to pay for all this stuff and you have to pay the soldiers. Yeah, yeah, the, that's the other thing. Uh, nobody fights for free. So if you want to have a big standing army, you have to pay them all. Napoleon got rid of this problem by, he said, look, I don't have money for you guys, but whatever you find, you can loot. You can loot, rape, and pillage anything that you find along the way on the warpath. And, and the soldiers were like, that's great. We, we made a lot of money, honey. Like when they come back with you know, big bags of gold and carrying somebody else's horse because they shot them, you know, it's not funny, but that's how, actually that was famously how Napoleon did that. But uh, Louis Sixteen was not Napoleon. He was barely figuring out how to impregnate, uh, what's her name? The German princess, the German, what was her name? Let them eat cake. Uh, Marie Antoinette. <laughs> he was not. He was not Napoleon, and he put uh, on loan basically a huge chunk of the French navy and military to go and make sure that the British didn't win the American, the the American conflict, the American Revolution. So by the time you get to the French Revolution, the idea we have all these ideas of progress, but it looks like one of the great nation states in Western Europe is basically just going to go bankrupt. And who knew what was going to happen then? And um, but so yeah, so Turgot and Adam Smith, a Brit and an Amer—I'm sorry, a Scot and an American. Uh, I'm sorry, a Scot and a French guy. Actually, I think Dergeau was... No, that was Necker. Never mind. Dergeau was French, yeah. And so, basically, they devised this whole theory that seems really common sense, but the only reason... It seems really obvious and common sense to us, but the only reason it seems that way is because it's been so completely and categorically adopted as our way of looking at the world. You start out with hunter-gatherers and so on. And, of course, we're we're so resorted to this kind of of state-of-nature deal as well. But you start out with these... hunter-gatherers that are basically egalitarian because there's nothing really to organize them into classes yet. So they just kind of run around and fuck each other and get food and that's fine. And when something happens and they don't like it, they just move. Actually, that sounds great. It sounds like the world I want to live in. But eventually then you have pastoralism, which is like, yeah, it's probably easier. Instead of just going and killing the goat every time, why don't we just raise a bunch of goats and then we can just kill them whenever we feel like it. We don't have to walk as far, and then from pastoralism, you eventually arrive at agriculture, the agriculturalism. Agriculture is the big problem. Rousseau called it the when everybody voluntarily ran headlong into their chains, as he famously said it. But agriculture is the big problem because once you have large standing uh, you know silos or you know, you know storage a storage of, of wheat and grain and lentils and all the, the, the various um, things that you could grow back then. And in the new world, they had maize, which turned into corn. But there were the, all these things that we now take for granted. And um, once you have these big things, somebody's got to, you basically you have private property problems. Like, okay, well, whose land is it on? Who owns it? You know, like who, like I just spent my whole summer and spring laboring in the hot sun to get a surplus of grain. Now I have a surplus of grain, well I need to no you can't just come and steal it, so I need a police force. And you know, I like I need the, my fields to get larger so I can get a bigger surplus. So you have to have something called, you know, you eventually you have to have something like private property. You have to defend the private property against intruders and all this other stuff. And so the next thing you know, you have basically you have a a a system of government that has what all the stuff in place that we now recognize. And then to Rousseau, that was the end, the age of innocence was gone. And to, and, but to Turgot and Adam Smith, it was basically progress, but it was progress that came at a cost. And so they said that once you get to the, once you get from agriculture, you go to industrialization, which is where everyone is. And then from, at the time of writing, they were starting, it was like pre-industrial, but it was fairly obvious. Look, the, when Adam Smith was writing, the Industrial Revolution hadn't happened yet in Britain. That explosion of the, you know, interchangeable parts from Eli Whitney and the steam engine from, what's his name? I forget his name now. The famous guy who made the steam engine... And then soon after that, we had electricity and so on. Like there's like just huge, massive changes. Steam was a big part of it because now you didn't have to have your factory built on a river. So you could just put factories everywhere, which gave rise to cities because now the factory is just sitting. Instead of having it sit on a river because you need the water for water power, right, to run everything. Now you can just wherever there's a city, you can put a factory nearby. So everybody moves to the city so they can work in the factory. And voila, you have modern life. But when Smith was writing, Adam Smith was writing about this, that hadn't happened yet. So he saw the progress of the industrializing world as being largely a question of the division of labor. So Smith famously says, you know, if you have a pin factory, you're going to have a hundred different people. I'm responsible for the head of the pin and so on. It's funny because the fact that he chose a pin instead of something like, textiles or something which actually formed part of the the main commerce the main product of the industrial revolution a hundred years later or so or you know or thereabouts the fact that he chose pins just kind of shows that he didn't see what those actual products of industrialization were going to be right pins didn't play a major part <laughs> like a lot of pins but cotton did and shirts did right and um and clothing did, and so on, and linen. And so, uh, so right, so like the division of labor, are, so right, but, but uh, what ends up, but when industrialization leads naturally to commercialization, and com- commerce is just where you have all these goods because you've industrialized, so now everybody, you know, I've made Fruit of the Loom t-shirts, I've got a thousand t-shirts. And so now I can sell them. So what's the price? And you create a market and that's commerce. So just people that don't know each other come together, use a medium like money to exchange for goods produced by the industrial economy. That's the commercial economy. And that to them was the end point of everything. So once you had a commercial economy, it's just, you just make that more and more powerful basically. And that was like, that's where everybody was headed. You know, of course, Marx said, no, that's not the last. That's the penultimate step. The last step is communism, where you get rid of all the classes that you introduced, beginning with agriculture, and then which really became pernicious at the, by the time of the 19th century with the, industri- the Industrial Revolution. You know, you have one more class, where you get rid of all the class stuff, and you still have all the other... You have all the good stuff, but you just don't have the class warfare anymore. And, of course, you know, Terjeau and Smith didn't think that that was... That wasn't... <laughs> They didn't think that. The end point was was commercialization. So an interesting question today, and there's a lot to unpack with all this stuff, but there's a lot to unpack. For instance, what ha- surveillance capitalism that we have now, how does that fit? It's interesting. Um, but another thing is just our economy, we are a commercial economy and have been since the inception of the country, right? We never were feudal. And by we, I mean the United States of America. Um, so we have, we, So the United States of America kind of came into existence being an embodiment of Terjeau and Adam Smith's ideas from the get-go. The idea that commerce was going to form the money-making apparatus and that you know, the livelihood-making apparatus of the United States was never an issue. And so the question has been since the inception of this country in the new world has been, how do you get economic growth? So we have the system that we believe is a functioning system. It's not going to be overthrown for something better. So we think maybe it will, maybe it won't. Nobody's come up with anything better yet, but how do we ensure that the system continues to provide economic growth? Because Implicit, although not often discussed, but implicit in Adam Smith and Turgot's analysis is that the the commerce has to work. But by work, you can't invoke a static understanding of it. It's got to always be creating a larger pie. That's basically what commerce has to do. You have to get more goods to buy, and more money to buy them, and more people with more money in their pockets. Which means people have got to be making getting better each generation is basically has to be keep getting better we have to keep growing so the question when you hit circa 2022 is first of all we haven't grown since the 1970s wages have been stagnant or worse since the 70s we've increased productivity but the fruits of that productivity have not made it to the working class so we we're in this situation now where it's entirely like one of the problems with the modern, the understanding of our modern world is that everything is predicated on economic growth, but economic growth doesn't seem like the kind of thing that can go on forever, right? Like, how is that supposed to work? How is it supposed to just keep going on forever and keep going on forever? And the, tip, the, the usual and not bad, I might add, answer to this is by technological innovation, But in this – I think in the last 20 years, we've seen a lot of – we've seen at least initially, we've seen a lot of innovation, but it does not – it has not translated into these assumed solutions to the economic growth problem, which every mature capitalist commercial system has that problem at root, how you keep the engine – not move – like people think, oh, we got to just keep things going – no, it's like a, cap of a mature commercial system is like a shark swimming. If the shark stops swimming, it sinks and dies. It's not quite a good analogy because the shark doesn't have to swim faster and faster and faster. Then pretty soon it would be like circumnavigating the globe like a beam of light or something. But you know the point is, is that a shark can't stop moving. If you want to think of movement as economic growth or progress... The shark, the capitalist system is like the shark in that sense. If it stops moving, it can't survive. It just sinks. Like you never see a shark just hanging out watching Netflix and not lo- not like, you know, in locomotion because it ha- locomotion is part of it getting oxygen through its gills. It's part of everything. And it doesn't, by the way, it doesn't... Uh, the propulsion system. I don't know why I'm getting into a shark propulsion system, but the propulsion system for a shark is obviously the fin, the main fin. And that, you know, the back fin, that's the how it propels through the water. And that thing has to keep moving all the time because if it stop, if the if you if, if you see a shark, a shark doesn't float in the water. Like right? the dynamics of the shark, it doesn't float in the water, it sinks. So it needs it basically to keep oxygenating its blood by water, oxygenated water passing through its gills. And it also needs it, it, it needs basically, it needs to keep propelling for that reason. And it needs to keep propelling so it just doesn't drop down to the bottom like a snail or something. So that's capitalism, it's like a big shark. And the question now is not so much the Marxist question, although you wonder if that ever became completely irrelevant. But the question is, is how do you ensure in perpetuity, perpetually economic growth? And we don't have a lot of evidence that right now, if you read the tea leaves right now from the 1970s to right now, a lot of economists who have a worrying streak perhaps, but looking at the data have to conclude that this economic growth thing is, is pretty difficult and we haven't fixed that or solved that at all. So that's what I would say about Marx. That, that montage, as it were, of everything is... This is my. This is this is how I make sense of the Marx podcast. I'm sorry, the Marx book that I just biography that I just read.